sauropod. Still not our dino, but at least this one's a vegetarian. Catch me if you can! It is my job to protect all the animals of this reserve. Here it is, the moment you've been waiting for. Here it is, you know exactly what's in store. Now's the time we laugh until our sides get sore. W Radio. Your information station. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. This is show number 30 for the week of September 2nd, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello. Happy Labor Day, and thank you for tuning in once again. There's a lot of Walt Disney World news to cover this week, including updates on the O Canada show, Disney's Pin Celebration 2007, the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique, changes to the reservation system, and more. And if you enjoy some of the news, you're going to love this week's long visit to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill, as it's packed with some very interesting tidbits, including what's going on backstage at the Wonders of Life Pavilion, what's going on on stage at the ABC Theater, High School Musical and its connection to the Hunchback of Notre Dame, surprises in store at the Imagination Pavilion, what to expect when Spaceship Earth reopens, the possibility of a new e-ticket attraction, and so much more. There's lots of breaking rumors here with some very interesting facts to back some of them up, so be sure to listen in. Last week, as part of our Epcot retrospective series, we profiled the Imagination Pavilion, and many of you wrote or called in and said that it was your favorite pavilion and were still fans of Figment. Well, this week, I have a special treat for you. As part of my Legends of Disney Imagineering feature, I have an exclusive interview with former Imagineer Steve Kirk, who came up with the initial concept for Figment and the Dreamfinder, as well as the Journey into Imagination attraction. He also helped develop some of Disney's most memorable characters, attractions, pavilions, and even complete theme parks. And for more than a decade, he was the creative leader of Tokyo Disney Sea in his role as Senior Vice President. We're also going to talk about Epcot, the studios, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I'll take a trip aboard my Walt Disney World Wayback Machine with Jeff Pepper as we explore another lovable character and his companion. This time, it's the little orange bird from the Sunshine Pavilion in Adventureland. We'll talk about who this little bird was and where he came from, his on-again, off-again relationship with Anita Bryant, why he flew the coop, and a surprising place you can find him now. We'll announce the winner of our recent Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge Contest and announce the latest contest with the help of Eric Hollister from Geomouse.com and Matt Cretaceous Hotchberg from MGMStudios.org. I'll get through more of your emails and voicemails as well, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. There's a lot of news coming out of Disney this week, and we'll start off with kudos to Walt Disney World, coming from the Florida Surgeon General, Anna Viamonte Ross, and the American Lung Association of Florida, who visited Walt Disney World this past Thursday to commend the resort for banning smoking in all 22 of its hotels. Disney imposed the ban earlier this spring, making it the largest resort complex in the country to impose a blanket prohibition on all tobacco smoke. The policy covers all of Disney's 24,000-plus hotel rooms, patios, and balconies, and was a welcome change to guests who do not smoke. Martin Short has stated that the new film at O Canada will provide a more realistic view of Canada than the original film from 1982, 
He said, I know I play different characters. I play a cowboy and a guy from Cirque du Soleil. They're all little vignettes talking about the different aspects of Canada. It's much more of a comedic look and, let's say, a light-hearted examination of Canada. Disney and the Canadian Tourism Commission hope the updated film, plus the introduction of Martin Short, will help improve the country's image as well as increase tourism. Now, I've already started to receive updates from the parks in the form of emails and voicemails. Let's go ahead and start with this first email that comes from Brian that has information and review of the new film, as well as some more information about dining around the world. Hi, Lou. This is Brian. Uh, I met you at your book signing. I'm the guy that talked to you about the uh, running in the marathon. I just wanted to say that I just got done with the film in Canada. They had a soft opening here on the 31st, and Martin Short uh, has really done a good job of narrating. There's comedy, there's new footage, there's old footage, there's a new song. The song is just as good as the old one. Everything's brilliant. I love I love it. I was afraid that they were going to mess it up, but they did a brilliant job on, on really kind of portraying what it used to be, but now what it is. They told you what some of the scenes are, or where some of the scenes are from, where you're going, and where you've been, it's just, it's phenomenal. Um, also wanted to let you know that they have uh, started a, a plaque here um, at Guest Relations, just inside the park, saying that uh, what restaurants have availability for dinner and which ones are full. Uh, it's real convenient so that you can just walk up and you can tell. So if you want to book a uh, dinner uh, last minute, you can. So just thought I'd let you know. I uh, look forward to hearing what's new on the show. Talk to you later. I also received another email review from Jessica, who is from the If We Can Dream It blogspot.com. She's a friend of the show, and she wrote in and said, Lou, O Canada was open today for soft previews. I got the chance to see it before its official opening tomorrow. I must say that I was a big fan of the original cheesy 80s movie, especially the song, and I'm not really a fan of Martin Short. However, the movie is hilarious and pokes fun at itself and travel movies in general, as well as stereotypes towards Canada, but don't get me wrong, it's still quite cheesy and campy. The original footage was re-edited and included in such a way that it feels very fresh and new. Martin Short provides great commentary with the changing scenes and identifies each place with some fun facts thrown in. This is a definite step up from the original film, which we were never really sure exactly what you were looking at. Eva Avila does a fantastic job singing Canada, Your Lifetime Journey. True, the song has been given a pop-influenced remodel, but it's done in a classy manner and given a great new life. All in all, I was pleased with the film and definitely think it works well. Plus, for the first time, no one walked out in the middle. The entire audience applauded afterwards, and there seemed to be only good comments. Jessica and Brian, thank you very much for sending those in. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to going ahead and checking that uh, new film out when I head down at the end of the month. The crew of the shuttle Endeavor, STS-118, will be guests of honor in ceremonies at Walt Disney World on September 10th. This will be the first official appearance of the crew since returning to Earth last Tuesday. Guests and school kids will be able to interact and greet the astronauts, which include teacher-turned-astronaut Barbara Morgan, who will unveil what is being described as a, quote, new addition to Mission Space. The astronauts will also serve as Grand Marshals in the Magic Kingdom's 3 o'clock parade. Now, I'm sure many of you are asking, what is this something new? What is this new addition that's going to be brought in? I have tried uh, making some phone calls and asking around to see what I can find. All I'm really gathering so far is it's probably something not in the attraction itself. You're probably looking at something that's going to be maybe 
from the shuttle added to the queue or maybe something like a plaque put out in Planetary Plaza. But we'll look and see. Again, if you're going to be down on September uh, 10th, they will be in both Epcot and the Magic Kingdom. So you can make sure you can look out for the astronauts there. As it nears the end of its multi-million dollar renovation, the Grosvenor Resort on Hotel Plaza Boulevard will be getting a new name on Saturday, known as the Regal Sun Resort. You can visit the new web website at regalsunresort.com. There you can see photos of the new rooms and you can also take advantage of some special pre-renovation rates. As a quick aside, I like the name change as it's much easier to pronounce and spell Regal, Regal Sun than it is Grosvenor. And speaking of updates, I have a voicemail update about the restaurant in Italy coming from a listener on the spot in World Showcase. Hey, Lou, it's Brad Garfinkel uh, calling you from Epcot with my wife, Cindy. And you may remember my uh, daughter, Julia, running around the uh, big ballroom at Magic Meets in uh, Camp Hill uh, last month. I just wanted to call and report we just had uh, a really great lunch at Alfredo's. And uh, we went to squeeze one more in before they shut down uh, tomorrow. And talking to our great server, Filippo mentioned that uh, they will shut down on the 31st and they're going to be closed for three weeks for training uh, and they'll retain the entire staff uh, but train them for three weeks and then in three weeks they'll reopen with the new menu and the new restaurant and they said that they'll, they'll change some things slightly inside uh, but nothing major and then this time next year is when they'll actually shut down and uh, do all the renovations so thought I would just pass that along uh, and uh, if any of your listeners are uh, looking to uh, go to the restaurant when it opens with a new name and a new ownership uh, ask for Filippo phenomenal phenomenal cast member Thanks, and uh, we enjoy your show, Thanks. The Disney Store, which is now owned by the Children's Place, is running its own Million Dreams contest. Called the Dream It, Be It Sweepstakes, it runs through October 1st, and they'll be awarding five grand prizes of five-day, four-night trips to the Walt Disney World Resort, as well as ten second prizes of five-day Walt Disney World Magic Away um, park hopping passes, Ten third prizes of four three-day Disneyland tickets and lots more smaller prizes as well. You can enter in person at the Disney store or via regular mail. I'll go ahead and put that address up in the show notes. Or if you have an email address and are willing to register at Disney.com, you can just enter online. You can also have a special individualized portrait session for you and your family with one of Disney's PhotoPass photographers at the Grand Floridian Resort's Portrait Sessions. You and your group can have your portrait taken with the Grand Floridian as your backdrop. You can even discuss beforehand with the photographer things such as location, wardrobe, and even theming. There's currently two photo packages available, which is a single sitting for about $49.95, and a package that includes a sitting plus a PhotoPass CD with all the images taken during your stay for $124.95. The sessions last between 20 and 30 minutes and are scheduled on the hour. For more information or to book a session, you can visit the PhotoPass desk on the second floor of the Grand Floridian, or you can call 407-824-1700. You do not need to hold the reservation with a credit card at the time of booking, so if you're interested, you can go ahead and call there or, again, just get some more information. Speaking of calling for more information and to get reservations, I called WDW Dine earlier this week to make some ADRs, and I received a new voice recognition system using a man's voice. Now, if you recall, a couple of months ago, I talked about some testing that was going on where Disney was inviting guests to call up this new system and test out not only the voice recognition, but the different women's voices that they were testing at the time. Well, now... Uh, there's a man's voice, and even when you, if he asks for a certain number, so he said, if he said press two for Victoria and Alberts, if you just say two, it would recognize it, etc. Now, at one point, that man's voice stopped, a new man's voice came on, and the voice recognition system no longer worked. So I don't know if this is something that they're just kind of testing out uh, sporadically, or if this is something that they're starting to roll out and really, really may 
helped try and expedite the system again. It worked flawlessly when I called. I actually called twice. I got it twice just to test and see uh, how well the speech recognition worked, and uh, it did work very, very well. Disney's Pin Celebration 2007, Where Dreams Happen, will take place between September 7th and September 9th at Epcot's World Showplace. This three-day event is going to allow you to immerse yourself in a world of endless possibilities where you can dream like Mickey Mouse or imagine like Figment. There's plenty of pin trading opportunities, games, and activities, as well as a dreamtacular collection of pins with their favorite Disney characters. This is a private, hard-ticketed event. It's going to be held during Epcot's regular park hours. You do need to have theme park admission to Epcot. Uh, if you want more information or if you're planning on attending, I'll put a link up in the show notes. But you can go to eventservices.disney.go.com slash pin trading for more information. I also have a voicemail construction update for work that is going on in all the Disney theme parks. This comes from John Carigliano, good friend of the show from the Mouse Times podcast and videocast. John is in the park and called in to give us an update on what is going on in the parks. Hey, Lou, it's John from MouseTimes.com. Just wanted to give you your Walt Disney World construction project tracker update. Uh, over here at the Disney MGM2, there is a blue wall around the structure head uh, reportedly to install the uh, enhancements to the structure head. The uh, permanent stage that's going on over at the Star Tours area is not being constructed on the Ewok Village, but is being constructed where they usually do their temporary stage uh, right uh, next to the fast pass line. So that's for you all who like the Ewok Village, it's not being destroyed. Over at Epcot, the wand is now down to a stub, which many of you are probably uh, hurrahing, and should be down in the next coming weeks. Over at World Showcase, a lot of the walls for Epcot's Blue Wine Festival have been going up and a lot of construction is going on around there. But moving back over to the Disney MGM Studios, Toy Story Mania, uh, construction has been going exceedingly smoothly. Uh, and for you people who are wondering why the street is ripped up, well, let's uh, say they hit a pipe by accident and they had to do some repairs. But besides that, uh, Mickey, uh, Social Mickey has not moved into the Disney Animation Studio as of yet, but hopefully soon. And there is a lot of scaffolding going on over at the Magic Kingdom in the Haunted Mansion. A lot of repair work, apparently. Uh, I guess there were termites that were eating away at the facade, so they're doing a lot of repair work on that. So, uh, Lou, just wanted to give you your in-park uh, project tracker uh, status update. <laughs> Uh, love the show, and uh, congratulations on your second year at winning Best Travel Podcast. Talk to you later, man. See you next week. This is just a reminder that the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique is going to open in the Magic Kingdom on September 10th of this year, so reservations are now being accepted. The new salon is going to be inside Cinderella Castle, and girls can choose from three different makeover packages, ranging in price from $35 to $245. As, long as, as well as three different hairstyles from the Disney Diva, Pop Princess, or the Fairy Tale Princess. And yes, boys can go there as well if they do want to get a haircut. They can get a cool dude package with colored gels and a Mickey stencil on the back. It's open every day from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. Kids must be at least three years old, and you do have to have theme park admission in order to get in. The first salon, as you know, is located in downtown Disney's Marketplace 
inside the World of Disney Princess Room. That will continue to stay open, but prices are going to increase at this location as of September 10th as well. For appointments or more information, you can call 407-WDW-DINE. Again, you can make your reservations as far as 180 days in advance. I know the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique in uh, Downtown Disney was very, very popular, and I highly suggest, if you are doing it, to make your reservations as far in advance as possible. And if you are going to Walt Disney World with your little pirate or princess, or maybe you're getting ready for the big pirate and princess party, well, the Walt Disney Florist now offers pirate and princess-themed gift baskets that they can deliver right to your room. They have an Inspire Your Princess basket for kids aged 2 to 4 that includes a royal scroll, scepter, and coloring book. The Proclaim Her as a Princess basket is for kids aged 5 to 12. That includes a royal proclamation, crown, and necklace. And the Striking It Pirate Rich is for boys aged 5 to 12. That includes a pirate scroll, pirate teeth, light-up sword, hat, and game. For more details and some pictures of the baskets, you can visit DisneyFlorist.com. Again, that link, as well as all the ones I discussed in this week's news section, I will put up in this week's show notes page at WDWRadio.com. We're going to take a long visit to the Walt Disney World rumor mill this week as there's a lot of great rumors with some possibly very close to being official announcements. We're going to jump all around the parks this week, but let's start off over at the studios because there's lots of talk recently about some blue sky ideas for Star Wars and Lucasland and some major changes that either people are hoping or think that may come to the studios. But let's talk about some rumors that have some information that comes directly from an Imagineering insider. We know that a new Star Tours update is on the horizon, but here's some details about what's actually going on backstage. The Body Wars simulators over at the Wonders of Life Pavilion are actually being used as the test beds for the new show technology. That's why this area of the Wonders of Life Pavilion is still there and has not been ripped out as yet. Now, there are some minor concerns about the new show displays, how well they'll work on the existing simulator beds. That's why I'm being tested there as opposed to being tested over at Star Tours itself. Supposedly, there is actually a lot of work being done backstage over at Epcot for this new Star Tours ride. Uh, they say that Disney is requiring probably at least three months of load testing to assure the exact uh, ride quality that they need on a consistent basis. So rumors of Star Tours hitting uh, in early 2008 may very well be incorrect. You might look later on into that year. Uh, a 2009 date may be much more likely, according to my source. But he did confirm that they will be using the high-definition 3D with polarized glasses for the new types of uh, for the new movie they're going to show. But not much detail beyond that. Staying over at the studios, I'm sure many of you will be happy to hear that the ABC Theater Building will be getting a new attraction, as I reported a couple of weeks ago. But Disney is keeping this very, very much under wraps, as supposedly only the Imagineers who are working on the project are privy to the exact details. But work is scheduled to begin on the show building, possibly by the end of this year. Now, Disney recently filed a permit for the rehab of the building uh, this past week to rework the exterior, replace the doors and carpet, as well as add new power and lighting, as well as work on some accessibility issues. I'll put a link up in the show notes. You can actually take a look at the permit itself. 
Staying over at the studios, I also got a call the other day from a friend at the company who advised that work is going to begin shortly on a new high school musical stage. Construction permits also cited this week cite an address of 357 Cypress Drive, Bay Lake, Florida, which coincidentally is right next to the old Hunchback Theater. Now, permits were filed on that same day for demolition of the theater, which has been left empty since the old Hunchback in Notre Dame show left other than being used for storage of the Osborne lights when not in use. Now, what I'm going to do in the show notes, I'm going to put links up so you can take a look at the permits itself. I'm also going to put a link up to a, um, a live map so you can see exactly where I'm talking about, exactly where the permits were filed for and exactly where the hunchback stage is. You can get an idea of what may be going on there. Again, I don't have a time frame for when this may take place. But I would assume uh, it will be relatively soon, especially once the once the uh, lights are fully installed and taken out of the Hunchback building. Other filings that I noted while kind of poking around the Orange County Register was something that in, about a Velcro exhibit over in Interventions West, including the construction of a stage, although I have no other details as yet, but I will keep my eyes and ears open. Staying over in Epcot, the, uh, at the Imagination Pavilion, I hinted a couple of weeks ago about rumors going on there. What I can tell you is that the Imageworks is definitely getting a refurbishment. But again, Disney is keeping this one very close to the vest. What I can tell you is that the old Imageworks um, is still there. All the games, all the kiosks are still upstairs. Many still remain intact. Many still work. Many are actually still left on, like the, uh, the sensor tunnel, which does supposedly light up, and although it only lights up as red and does not... Uh, respond to the movement of people as they walk through it. The old pin tables are there, kind of pushed to a side in a corner, as well as the old paintbrush cannons uh, from Figment's coloring books, which still stand kind of ready to aim and paint the images on the walls. I do not have a timetable for this or exactly what is going to go there. Again, my hope is that something may be done in time for the October 1st ceremony, although I cannot verify or guarantee that as well. It looks like some recent posts making their way around the internet spoiled one of the rumors I wanted to report on last week, but unfortunately I was away. But after hearing from a number of sources, it seems that the Kim Possible experience that was tested in Epcot last year will be coming back, as I have been told of work being done in World Showcase, namely the Canada Pavilion, to accommodate the new game. Now this week, Walt Disney World filed paperwork again with the Orange County uh, Register's Office documenting the Kim Possible World Showcase SFX Special Effects Package. Now, the role-playing game that took place last year allowed guests to solve this mystery. They use these pre-programmed cell phones with GPS systems installed. There were clues planted all the way around Epcot. It was really more so a test of the technology as opposed to the actual gameplay. So I would assume that the game itself might change, but the technology uh, will either be similar or enhanced. What I'll do, too, is I'll put a link in the show notes to a review of the game that was done last year by Disney Dame 2004. It's in the article section over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com so you can get a better idea of exactly what's going on and what may be coming soon. Here's an interesting rumor about Epcot and the DVC properties from a listener voicemail that somebody called in while on property. So rather than me paraphrase it, I want you to hear it right from the source. Here goes. Hey, Lou, this is Dean from Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, I just wanted to leave you a quick message. We're still down here at Disney World. Uh, my family and I met you last Saturday at Virgin uh, Megastore. That was so great to finally meet you um, and your wife. That was that was fantastic. Um, just leaving Epcot for a little midday break, and thought I'd leave you a message. 
um, with a couple pieces of information that might be of interest. Knowing you, you've probably already known this stuff for weeks now, but it was new to me, so here's a little 411 for you. Um, last night, about 11.30, we were tucking the kids in bed and heard some loud booms um, outside. We're staying at Caribbean Beach, and uh, we heard some booms from the direction of Epcot. And we also got a message on our voicemail saying that um, they apologized for the loud noises, that they were testing some, they were experimenting with some new fireworks. So they're working on something new, um, potentially some upcoming changes or something for illuminations. And uh, so we thought I'd pass that on. And also stopped in and talked with somebody at one of the DVC desks, because um, we're kind of looking into that. And um, I asked them when they were going to start selling for the contemporary one, just kind of fishing for some information. He said that they're not starting. He kind of confirmed that that was going to be a DVC, but um, they're going to sell the Saratoga Springs and Animal Kingdom Lodge first, and then they're probably going to do a DVC at Disneyland in California, and they already have land for a DVC in Hawaii, which I did not know, and I thought that was interesting. So um, uh, you may or may not have already known that, but thought I'd pass that along. Have a great day, and um, it was nice again to meet you, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Here's another one of those really juicy rumors I was talking about. I've learned that there will be a new e-ticket attraction coming to the Magic Kingdom, but not near Pooh, and no, not even in Fantasyland. Nope. Instead, it's going to be in Tomorrowland. So get ready to say goodbye once again, but this time it's to the Galaxy Palace Theater and possibly the old Skyway building, where, by the way, I found they are housing some some old buckets as well as the timekeeper himself. Now, don't ask me how I know, but just know, but let's just say this is not going to be happening tomorrow, pardon the pun, but probably within the next three to four years. As you know, that theater is not used on a daily basis. It often uh, stands empty. It's only really used for special events, some hard ticket things like uh, Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party, things like that. But yeah, probably within the next three or four years, that area of Tomorrowland um, is going to change dramatically and a new e-ticket attraction will likely be going in there. Staying in the Magic Kingdom, I am also understanding that speaking of Christmas, the Country Bear Jamboree Christmas special will return this year after taking a little break last year for whatever reason that may be. Um, This is not official. It has not been announced yet. I assume as we get closer um, to the holiday season, Disney will hopefully announce that the Country Bear Christmas special will be returning. Here's an interesting rumor that may be confirmed by a listener who wrote in and said, Lou, have you heard anything about Tomorrow's Child being re-recorded for the revamped Spaceship Earth? A friend of mine who works for a recording studio insists that the same artist that recorded We Go On recently recorded and updated Tomorrow's Child. Is it possible, please say if it's so, that we could see Tomorrow's Child back in the near future? And that came from PC Fraley. Well, PC, thank you for the email. This is actually something that I've heard a couple of times before, and you're you're the first kind of person um, outside from where I was originally hearing it from that mentioned it. Now, supposedly, the composer for the new musical score is going to be somebody named Bruce Broughton, whose music can be heard throughout the Disney theme parks and in films such as The Rescuers Down Under. Some of his theme park music includes The Timekeeper from Time to Time, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, and The Making of Me. He has more than 20 Emmy nominations, uh, received 10 of them. He's got other motion picture credits that include Lost in Space, Tombstone, Baby's Day Out, 
Harry and the Hendersons, How They Blew Up the Kid, uh, Dinosaurs. He's also done scores for Amazing Stories, How the West Was Won. Now, the artist who recorded the song, just talking about, like you said, is Kelly Coffey. She provides that, that soaring vocals for Illuminations as well as in the Sharing a Dream Come True song. Now, another very, very, very unsubstantiated rumor that I have heard about this is that if this comes back, uh, oh, I'm sorry, when it comes back, Captain Jean-Luc Picard, also known in real life to us Star Trek geeks as Patrick Stewart, may be recording the new narration. But again, I, I want to qualify that. It is very much a wild rumor, maybe some uh, uh, some wishing more so than based in fact, and I really have nothing else to corroborate that. But yes, I, I have heard that there is a possibility that Tomorrow's Child may be coming back in some form. Uh, of course, as I hear more, I will let you know. Finally, a few weeks ago, I had former Imagineering legend George McGinnis on the show, and I hinted to the fact that somewhere during our interview, he seemed to confirm a long-standing rumor. Now, a few of you weren't sure exactly what I was referring to, so here it is. George stated that a colleague at Imagineering that worked on Disneyland's Space Mountain refurb and major upgrade has confirmed to him that something would be taking place in Walt Disney World for Space Mountain likely sometime next year. I'm now hearing that this long-term refurb may actually be announced officially within the next couple of weeks and Walt Disney World will be getting some sort of a major change either to the ride system or the vehicles or the audio system in Space Mountain. Again, I don't have the exact details. I am going to investigate further. Again, we may be hearing something as early as this week. Of course, if I do, I'll report it on the show. And by all means, if you have any rumors that you hear or something that you want to share, please send them in to lou at wdwradio.com or you can call the voicemail anytime at 206-202-4WDW. Well, hello there, WDW Radio Show listeners. It is I, Eric Hollister, from Geomouse.com, and we are coming at you with an update to announce the winner in the next in our Half Marathon Challenge Series for mile marker number four. But before I do, we want to make a correction for mile marker number three. The winner was listed as Nick Fufel, and uh, we saw on the forums that his name is actually Nick Lay, L-E-Y, and if I mispronounce it, I apologize, but uh, we wanted to make that correction. So congratulations again to him for mile marker number three. We want to thank again Mike Scopa from WDW today for his help in challenge number four. For those of you who are interested in the answers, uh, here they are. Oh, sorry, Mr. Eisner. It came from the MGM Studios, which will be renamed to Hollywood Studios later on in 2008. The attraction was the animation tour, or we also accepted the Magic in Disney animation, also the animation backlot tour. Uh, there were several variations, but we did accept all of those answers. And finally, the character who said it was Chernabog. So congratulations to everybody who got the answers correct. Um, we did take all those winners, or take all those submissions and pull them together. We've drawn a name, and this week's winner is Heidi Meister for challenge number four. Congratulations to Heidi, who has chosen to name her mile marker 
Mickey Meister Mile. And the prize package that she will be receiving will be both Walt Disney World Trivia Books 1 and 2 signed by Lou Mangiello. The DisneyWorldTrivia.com t-shirt, both DisneyWorldTrivia.com trading pit and lanyards. The Jack Skellington animatronic bust. She's also going to receive a certificate of dedication for mile marker number four, which of course, again, is Mickey Meister Mile. And we'll go ahead and post that up on geomouse.com. Lou will post a link to it in the show notes. And finally, Heidi will also be entered in our grand prize drawing, which will take place after the Walt Disney World Half Marathon in January of 2008. Finally, once again, $100 from geomouse.com will go to the Dream Team Project as we continue to raise, get closer and closer to Lou's original goal. Hopefully we can smash through that and uh, start working on some new goals. So we're going to send it back to Lou, but stay tuned for the next challenge in our series, which will come up later in the show, and will feature Matt Hotchberg from WDW Today, MGMstudios.org, and the man who holds the record for the most consecutive trips on Dinosaur. So take it away, Lou. We'll go back to you, and we will talk to everybody later. Bye. As part of our continuing series, where we get the opportunity to meet some legends of Disney Imagineering, I'm pleased to welcome someone whose accomplishments with the company during his 25-year career fit that bill of truly being legendary. Beginning as a show designer at Walt Disney Imagineering, my next guest conceived and designed some of Disney's most memorable characters, attractions, pavilions, and even complete theme parks. And for more than a decade, he served as the creative leader of Tokyo Disney Sea in his role as Senior Vice President. So I am pleased to welcome former Walt Disney Imagineer Steve Kirk to the WDW Radio Show. Hi, Lou. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you very much uh, for, for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm really excited to, uh, to have the opportunity to talk to you. Well, my pleasure. So, you know, Mr. Kirk, it's so, uh, you've had such a, a long, remarkable career at WDI. Um, but before we kind of talk about some of those accomplishments and specific projects. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started at Imagineering? Well, let's see. Um, I went to Cal State Long Beach uh, and got a degree in illustration, a BFA. And while I was there, um, an associate of mine, a friend of mine actually, named Roly Crump, who was the, um, the, uh, the designer back with Walt who did the Tower of the Four Winds and was the, uh, one of the producers, or the producer, I guess, on um, Small World. And he knew my brother, and uh, he said, and uh, we kind of recruited us to to do a couple of jobs uh, with him um, uh, for Bush Gardens way back in '75. And then in '76, um, the uh, Imagineering web then was starting to recruit designers, and uh, really just started back there again after being gone in Florida for a while. And uh, so I went to work there, and I, I got an interview with um, some of the the. Um, the resident designers there. One was Tony Baxter, uh, and Tim Delaney was, were another, was another one that, that uh, um, took a look at my portfolio. 
um, I was hired, and uh, Tony and I started working together on Discovery Bay, which was really, really exciting. Um, I worked on a, a little show called Professor Marvel's Gallery of Illusion for Discovery Bay, and uh, created a little character, a little little sculpture of uh, Professor Marvel uh, holding his, his little pet dragon. And uh, he actually popped up oh, about, oh, about a year later uh, in an Epcot pavilion. Yeah, you know, and again, you're leading me exactly where I wanted to go because, you know, in in looking at your body of work, and I'm going to talk some more about some of the things that you've done, there's so much that I can and, and would love to talk to you about, but specifically, one of your creations is something that I want to focus on because what we've been doing, especially with Epcot's 25th coming up as part of this Epcot retrospective series that we're doing, is highlighting and exploring some of these pavilions and their attractions, and you really ha- had a, a large hand in creating one of the most beloved characters, not only in Epcot or in the Imagination Pavilion, but one of Disney's, you know, probably greatest uh, characters in recent history. And, and of course, what we're talking about Figment. Well, it, it, it's kind of an anomaly because, um, again, my theme park days before Disney, during Disney, and now after Disney, the, you know, the conventional wisdom is that you really can't introduce a character uh, to the public in a theme park. It almost has to be um, via some other media, either animation or live action or, or something. Um, with a few exceptions, um, like Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, which were all new characters at the time, uh, Small World, again, a, a new introduction of, of styling and characters, and the Imagination Pavilion with Figment and Dreamfinder, they're about the only examples I can think of offhand of product, uh, of intellectual product, that um, came along um, before or actually exclusive of any media. So it's, it's kind of, I think it's, it's basically, it's luck in a lot of ways, but it's also, I think, the character being in the right place at the right time. Well, I think it's the character itself, too. And we've talked a lot about Figment specifically because there's something, that Figment has this quality, this whether it's his childlike innocence or his curiosity or whatever it is that appeals to people on so many different levels. And I think that's why he, even more so than characters that are nameless from some of the attractions like Small World and Pirates, has not only got such a following, but really has become, um, you know, almost a, a cult icon um, to Disney fans. Well, it's it's interesting. I, and again, I can't don't quite know how to explain it. Um, I, I can say one thing that, as, as you already know, the Imagineering, Web and Imagineering, were definitely big group efforts. And while I got, got the ball rolling um, in, unintentionally with Figment and uh, Dreamfinder, um, in the initial design and, and concept of uh, working with Tony, it really, there, was, there were several iterations of him afterwards. Um, an illustrator named Andy Gaskell, uh, um, sculptors, and um, a, a number of, of um, other interpreters of those two characters helped him evolve, uh, helped both characters evolve over time. So the, the product that you actually see is a walk around uh, in the park or uh, in, in the ride what they used to be, really were the end evolution of a, of a, of a quite a team effort. Yeah, and the, the genesis of Figment is something that I think is very, very interesting. Uh, you know, the legendary story of Tony Baxter watching an episode of Magnum P.I., um, you know, coming up with the idea of quantifying something uh, about a figment of the imagination. But really it was you and Andy Gaskell and Exitensio that kind of gave him form and substance, whereas Tony really came up with the name and the idea. Yeah, in fact, Tony um, 
And again, it, 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 it's really interesting, the kind of the genesis of some of this stuff, but going back to Discovery Bay, Dreamfinder, it wasn't called Dreamfinder then, it was Professor Marvel, as per the Wizard of Oz thing, um, that Tony really wanted to have kind of this traveling wizard magician type, um, um, almost a Circus of Dr. Lowe uh, type of, of uh, venue show presentation type thing. And that character stuck in Tony's mind, I think, and I think he confirmed this, when he got into the Imagination Pavilion as being a host and kind of a, um, you know, an embodiment of the imaginative process. So using Figment as the foil to um, Professor to um, uh, Dreamfinder, it was a great way to explore the subject matter that we wanted to explore for the Imagination Pavilion. And if you can, Mr. Crook, for, for those people who may not be all that familiar with the Discovery Bay concept for Disneyland that never really took place, kind of synopsize for us what that was and then kind of how Professor Marvel ended up becoming the dream finder. Um, I don't, don't want to repeat what Tony's probably already told you, but the anecdote, <laughs> as, as I remember, it was I was in my office. Uh, we'd all been taken off of every other project except Epcot. So everyone had been reassigned from Disneyland, from Disney World, um, you know, Magic Kingdom and so forth. Um, on that, on Epcot, and everybody was was part of a pavilion. Tony was in with the um, uh, Kodak folks, and as being potential sponsors for some kind of pavilion. And again, I don't think he quite knew yet what their tie-in would be. And um, he ran into my office in the middle of this meeting and said, "Can I borrow the little Figment and and Dreamfinder, or or Figment and um, uh, yeah, Dreamfinder at the time?" And he grabbed it and took it into them to show it to them. And, and he said, this is the kind of character development we can do is being a host for a pavilion, maybe on imagination. And they said, that's great. Did we get the dragon too? And, and Tony said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The dragon, you know, kind of threw the dragon in as a, as a, you know, this, this is kind of how I remember him telling me the story. The only issue was that, uh, at the time, the, uh, dragon was painted green. Figment was green. And uh, Kodak thought that represented a little too much of a Fuji connection, so uh, he, he turned purple as a result of that. You know, it's, it's, it's so funny because you hear so many of these stories, and we talk about some of these stories, and you never know if they're true, if they're just kind of urban legend that kind of gets its own thing. So it's great to have them confirmed from somebody that was actually there. And, uh, and I've actually seen a photograph of, I guess, some of the early sculpture work of a very different-looking Dreamfinder with his uh, monocle and, and white mustache and beard holding this this green very skinny looking dragon yeah that that kind of represents my little more acid uh <laughs> approach to character design a little, a little more edgy kind of a sarcastic approach um and he got he got the edges actually andy gaskell put some really nice edges on him and exidencio took his angle on it and then finally when he was sculpted dimensionally uh he evolved into what he is today he he got a lot a lot cuter as he as he grew older i think <laughs> there's a uh, there's a quote saying that that existential made him lovable in a way that kids could actually relate to yeah and at the time at the time i wasn't quite sure but in in retrospect it really was a good call because i think that um that kind of that all the the uh, the curves and all that business and the design really did did help make him a, a very appealing character the Dreamfinder character, kind of tell us how he, he, he came to be, how he, where you came up with the concept of him going around the universe, collecting all these magical things, um, and coming up with the dream port and the dream vehicle. Um, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember, um, uh, we, Tony and I were, and, and, and again, other writers and, and illustrators and designers, we've had con a lot of concept loose guy sessions, and I think... 
Tony had the idea of that new ideas are the product of collecting old ideas and then synthesizing them into a third new product. I think that was kind of a new idea. That was kind of the basic premise of the storyline. So the idea of some kind of a metaphor for gathering um, creative ideas or, or even natural things or other concepts that have been that have been existing before, recombining them was was the angle. And so we knew we had to start the show out with some way of showing the Dreamfinder and Figment were collecting um, stuff, you know, um, scientific stuff, artistic stuff, natural stuff, whatever. And so for him to have a device that collected and then stored and took them back to his, his workshop seemed to be a pretty straightforward... Again, it's all a model for the way the human mind works in, in one, in one uh, scenario. So um, I had done a lot of, of assemblage-type uh, whimsical Victorian flying machines in my portfolio and, and uh, in my history before that. And so Tony and I thought, well, why not build a machine that the character can actually be piloting uh, and with a vacuum bag at the back that was, you know, sucking up all these great ideas for, for use later on. And so I just sat down on my little workbench there and, uh, as an inch scale model, built this from just junk, stuff I'd found, stuff I'd stolen from the, from the model shop or the, the, the tool crib or whatever. And, um, and then drawings were drawn of that machine, um, and they, 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 they mass produced six of these things in full scale, and they were quite large. They were like, I don't know, I'm trying to remember, like 25 feet total length or something. So I remember going to, over to Mapo and seeing of uh, six of these things laid out on the, on the, um, you know, full scale, laid out on the, uh, the construction floor. And it was just amazing. I mean, it was like something like from World War II, seeing these, these you know, <laughs> fighter planes being assembled in Moss and really impressive. I was amazed that I got that far with that thing. Yeah. The, 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 um, the concept for it and how it was all put together and kind of like you said, that, that kind of Jules Verne-esque uh, quality to it is something that, that was wonderful. And unfortunately, the only place we can still see it today is the one that's up in Mouse Gear, kind of up um, near the ceiling. Oh, is that where it is? Okay. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's the only one I've seen uh, you know, outside the attraction once it was taken down. But how much, beyond the characters themselves and some of those initial things, how much of the actual story of the original Journey to Imagination did you have a hand in? I, I just worked with the concept group. Uh, Tony led it, and uh, there were, I think there must have been, oh my gosh, a couple of writers, uh, me, I think my brother Tim was involved in some of the, the brainstorming sessions. Uh, as I said, these things were, were very large um, uh, collaborative efforts. And uh, while Tony, again, was the, the torchbearer for the overall concept, uh, it, it really did pass through a lot of other hands uh, you know, with, with his guidance. I think one of the things that, that still remains fascinating about the original attraction to me, and I keep referring to the original because I think maybe some some of the newer generation doesn't remember uh, the original, which is very, very different than what we have today, is how you were able to quantify things like the arts and literature and science and make them into real tangible things that we could see and smell and really relate to you know, the, our, our own human mind. Well, it, it probably, if you think about, oh gosh, uh, everything in Epcot and most of the things at theme parks, it's the most metaphorical, um, I guess model you'd call it, for the creative process. And it really, really was tough in a lot of ways. And in that, to come up with a good, a good, um, I don't know what you call it, I guess model would be it, for the creative process is really, really an abstract, uh, uh thing, obviously. 
and has all kinds of different interpretations. We did a lot of research, a lot of reading, and in in the end, at the end of the day, we just kind of sat down and thought, well, as creative people ourselves, what what is the process? You know, how do you start? What are the mid what are the mid points in the in the thing? And what is the, what are the final products? So. In a lot of ways, after doing all this research, we just kind of looked into ourselves and said, "Well, this is this is a, not not a bad model for how we work anyway." Right, and we we talked when we talked about the attraction how there were really these these four basic show scenes of arts, literature, performing arts, and science. And when you started in the arts section, one of the most memorable parts about it for me was this giant sort of white artist palette, and it was kind of I guess a metaphor for us starting our journey, our mind being a blank canvas. But the use of color and light and sound really gave that scene so much life. And again, that's something I, I still remember to this day. Yeah, in fact, uh, we, we wanted to give each one of those those key scenes uh, an attitude. You know, uh, audio, lighting, uh, the sculptural forms, the animation, the vignettes that represented Figment as the, the story thread through all of this and how he was in, was working in these different environments with this different um, genre. So um, I think they really were very distinct. In fact, I can remember them pretty clearly even today as far as, as them not being um, blurred or, or indistinct. Especially going from, I remember specifically, transitioning from arts to literature, which was very dark and very scary, and the music you know, being the same song was, was still so very foreboding. It really had a very different feel than what came before, and then obviously the very fun sort of performing arts, Broadway-style theater scene that came after. Yeah, and it, I think it's like a like a symphony or anything else that to hit all the notes and, and to have the different contrast, to have the different attitudes. Um, then with the big finale at the end, um, I, I really think it was um, for what for what it was attempted to do was relatively successful. I, I think it was very very successful, and you know, unfortunately, the attraction closed uh, for a variety of reasons in 1998. It op- reopened a year later as Journey into Your Imagination. Unfortunately, without Dreamfinder and Figment. How how did you feel when that when that change took place? Well, I thought I was I was a little disappointed. I mean, I thought, well, I, everything has a nothing lasts forever, um, you know, except Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and um, I was thinking, well, I was I was grateful that it had as as, as long um, a lifespan as it had. And then I guess eventually I've been told the there was a um, the guests really wanted to see the two characters come back, and that. That was sort of responsible for the Renaissance, I guess, and them returning. And that's amazing, and that's something, you know, people have talked about sort of the, uh, the kind of fan outcry when Mr. Toad was going to close, but it was nothing like Figment because it wasn't just hardcore fans or people online. I mean, there were guests going to guest relations complaining that Dreamfinder and Figment weren't there, and it's a testament to how powerful the character, especially of Figment, really was to, to the everyday guest. Well, you know, it's funny, and I'm not a very good anecdote teller, but I think one of the most significant things that have happened to me in my professional life, I was in a market somewhere, and I was uh, checking out, and on the, on the, the cash, um, the, the gal at the cash register had a little purple figment, um, you know, glued to the top of her cash register, and I said, oh, have you been to Epcot? And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I really love Epcot, and our kids love Epcot. And I said, well, you know, I, I actually designed, had a part in designing that little character. And then she goes, and she was very, very excited, and, and I said, uh, and she says, oh, that's fabulous. And then she got kind of misty a little bit and said, you know, it meant a huge amount to my daughter who was, was there on some children's program who was dying of cancer. And she said that the, the Figment and Dreamfinder figure were, were hosting them, and that was one of her 
her daughter's fondest and happiest and, and last, as it turns out, memories. And I and I just I just didn't know what to say. I kind of choked up and and I actually finally believed that I that those characters did have some impact on people. And clearly, they still do to this day. Fortunately, you know, Figment came back in a, in a slightly different form when Journey into Your Imagination with Figment reopened. Uh, is that anything that you had a hand in, or was it just kind of did they just bring the character back and put him back into the attraction? No, I was I was really busy on Japanese projects at the time, so I really didn't have any um, uh, any input or anything to do with that actually. How do you feel about the attraction now with Figment versus your original concepts and, and the original attraction when it opened? Well, I have to be honest, I, I really haven't seen it. So <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. Well, I can tell you that it's nothing like the original attraction. And uh, while it's great to have him back, it's still, it doesn't, there's something missing. Um, there, there's a certain quality that's missing that was there in the first attraction. And there's been rumors for, for some time now that um, it's going to close and it's going to be refurbished and, and you know, creative forces like John Lasseter and Tony Baxter still want to kind of redo it and sort of bring it back to his original glory. And uh, who knows, maybe even see Dreamfinder again. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be wonderful. Yeah, I think Very a lot great. of I think a lot of fans, uh, especially from my generation, would uh, would love to see them come back. But uh, you know, we just kind of really scratched the surface of some of the things that you've done while you were at um, Imagineering, and I guess we could talk for a couple minutes about some of the other things that you did to really help turn Epcot into a reality. I think it's appropriate, again, with, with, the, with the 25th anniversary coming up, to talk about some of the other things you did for Epcot. Okay. Uh, the, the other two venues that I was seriously involved in, one was the um, Wonders of Life Pavilion. Um, and I, again, I helped um, Barry Braverman and Roy Crump. Uh, no, Roy Crump with Lansley, excuse me. Barry Braverman um, generally... Um, uh, with the overall concept, we worked together, and specifically the Cranium Command show. And again, that was, um, you know, a, a message in search of a metaphor. Um, and it, it, it's it really the idea of being inside of somebody's head and taking a mechanistic metaphor or model for the human uh, mind-body relationship is, is is an old idea. It goes way back into uh, some of Walt's uh, early animation with uh, emotion and reason. Ward Kimball worked on that. And um, it was also uh, Woody Allen did a did a thing for that with uh, one of his movies, and there have been about a, a half dozen other um, mechanical um, metaphors explaining different aspects of the human body. So we were we were trying to think of a way to talk about um, the whole mind body relationship as far as stress related scenarios go, and we thought, well, why not you know be up inside of somebody's head and do a um, a, um, a model, a, you know, a, a, a kind of a cockpit type approach to the conscious mind, and then that idea grew into more of a Star Trek type uh, bridge of a ship. So, in Creative Command right now, it was there was one character with a supporting cast on on film in different parts of the body. Originally, there was a captain, a you know, a Mister Spock type, a um, <laughs> Um, you know, uh, several ensigns at each of the senses. There was a, um, an officer for, for reason. There was an officer for emotion. So there was this little cast of these little characters about maybe two feet tall in this pretty big theater that was a pretty, uh, you know, involved bridge of a ship, which is, again, inside the, the human head. And after value engineering, we got it down to one character and a robot, which is okay. Um, but it, it 
turned out to be, I think, again, a relatively successful way to explain some pretty complicated um, message units. And um, the neat thing about that show, it was never done, was that it could have been reprogrammed with new software and new animation to tell a whole bunch of different stories. Hmm. Because the, the vehicle of being inside of somebody's head really could t- talk about all kinds of, of health habits, um, autoimmune diseases, um, uh, you know, how digestion works, how musculature and, 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 and the, the, the nervous system works. Um, but it, was, it never was. It only had one show, and, and that was kind of the end of it. So that, I, that was, I think, a pretty good way to explain some, some other, a little more concrete information than certainly imagination was. Mm-hmm. The well, other... As I was say, no, it's, you know, you talked about how tough it was to quantify imagination, trying to quantify, you know, what you were doing there was great. But, and again, I think this is one of Walt Disney World's lost treasures because it was a great show. It had a wonderful celebrity cast to make it fun, to make it uh, something that every generation can enjoy. But I know where you're going with the next one, which is your work on the land. So the challenges of trying to quantify things like that versus trying to make something like nutrition exciting must have been a challenge in yeah, and of itself. That was uh, a challenge. And also to take a, a pretty middle of the road the um, as far as the nutrition versus health habits. Um, how do you say this? Anyway, Kraft Foods was the, was the sponsor. And um, we tried to find something that would, would make them happy and also not be um, um, too controversial from a, oh, how do you say it, um, sponsor-influenced um, message unit. And I think we, we hit a pretty happy middle ground. It, moderation was the bottom line in Kitchen Cabaret. We always said that everything in, in moderation, in balance, try to hit the four food groups, all that business. Um, as good as the information, the scientific information was then, we tried to reflect in that show and then put it in as wacky um, context if we could, which was this, you know, you're in a kitchen and all this stuff is singing and dancing and, and doing all this stuff, all the foodstuffs and so forth. So I, I think those three shows in their own way each tried to tell a pretty serious message, um, but with a, a fun kind of a, a Disney slant on them. And that's exactly the word that I was going to use to describe them all because while they were, you know, clearly uh, brilliantly inspired and wonderfully executed all of them were very, very fun. And again, you're talking about things like nutrition and imagination, things that are very tough to describe. And obviously, they still have a lasting impression to this day. Um, you know, the characters themselves and the attractions themselves. I know a lot of people from my generation, especially, still, you know, enjoyed and miss shows like Kitchen Cabaret. Well, I, I like to think that those shows represented a part of the Epcot spectrum. Um, you know, which is again in the best Disney tradition. You know, you, you make them laugh, you make them cry, you make them think, and all that kind of stuff. That um, we handled me and, the, and my immediate associates I worked with, who I think were wonderful people, all were on the the laughing fun side in general. And um, I think that Epcot at one point actually had a pretty good balance between the real scientific messages, the edutainment stuff. Um, and, um, you know, the whole world showcase thing. So it, 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 it's, it's, um, anybody can criticize projects because they feel short of, of their goals, but you, everyone has to admit that Epcot set some hugely ambitious goals. And I'm, I'm just amazed that it was successful as it was, frankly. Yeah, and you led me to the question was, which was how much balance, you know, Epcot early on was, was criticized for being too much education as part of the edutainment. Um, and, and it was, you know, people considered it to be 
not fun. It was a learning park. How much did they kind of rein you in, I should say, you know, for balancing fun versus education? Um, it was a kind of a pendulum that sweep back and forth between uh, who you were talking to and what time, what time in the evolution of, uh, process uh, you, were, you were looking at. Um, one, it's funny because the, the character presence in Epcot, we were determined, everybody that I ever talked to on the project was determined not to have the traditional Disney characters there. Um, we also had the same um, resolution in um, Studio Tour, in Disney and Gem Studios Tour with, with Bob Weiss and, and that group. And in both cases, the public just demanded and were disappointed that, that, that the traditional characters weren't there, and so they eventually migrated. Um, I think that in some ways the fun quotient is going to find its own level in these things. That the, I, I can't, I don't think we ever could ever be criticized for being too much fun. I do think we could be criticized for being too didactic or too pedantic or whatever the word is. <laughs> now, how do you feel? And I, and I don't know if you've seen the attractions, but clearly there's a move towards bringing uh, characters from outside the park as opposed to creating new characters inside the park. In whether it be the three caballeros classic characters or bringing Nemo in to a pavilion like the seas. How do you feel about bringing those characters in and changing the whole makeup of the attraction and pavilion? Well, in, in my more purest, um, a little more fanatical days, I would have been very much against it. But after being through Disney and then also being on the outside uh, as a consultant for six years, I really think intellectual properties have to be exploited and used appropriately to the best leverage you can. Because it just, it, people... Really, if it's a good product like Nemo and, and uh, the Pixar stuff and, and the Disney characters, and it's appropriate, I, you know, you don't want to put Snow White talking about atomic energy or something. <laughs> um, but if the character is a good spokesperson for that for that message, then I, I'm all for it completely, and I, I think the public wants it. I agree, and, and I think you know, for example, Nemo and the Seas. The integrity of the pavilion is kept intact. The integrity of the character is kept intact because it, it is such a good fit. And I, and I, even though I am an Epcot purist, uh, I, I have no problem with it. And I think it works well. And I think you need to do things like that for this next generation of fans that's coming in. And I think as long as, and Florida is the particular, the, the, the particular example, as long as the boundaries between the parks and the, the unique identity of the four parks is maintained and people don't get confused with too much cross-fertilization of material, it'll be okay. Um, and we, we made the same speech to um, the Oriental Land Company about Tokyo Disneyland versus Tokyo Dis Disney Sea, that you can't present the same stuff in the same parks the same way, or people really won't see the, the differentiation, won't see the distinction. And the problem in Florida is even worse, because you have four parks, and the temptation, and two water parks, the temptation to start you know, sprinkling everything with a great product, uh, once it comes out, like all of a sudden we see Ratatouille in all four parks or something, that is a real danger. And, and it, that has to be a self-policing thing inside the Disney company and to uh, avoid that kind of confusion. Well, two of the other you know, projects you worked on specifically for Florida are very different than some of the things you did for Epcot, and those are the great movie ride and the Tower of Terror. Well, and again, I was in a very much of a supporting role, not in the lead role at all on, on a Great Movie Ride and Tower of Terror. My, my brother Tim was much more in, uh, um, instrumental in both of those in the, in the concept teams. Um, but I, I did enjoy my, my work with um, um, 
Bob Weiss on the studio tour very, very, very much. And it was the idea of behind the scenes movie making the studio tour format was a really, really neat uh, change of, of anything I'd ever done before, in fact, or in fact since. Um, and the the vehicle of using the making of movies to tell these stories was a really fascinating challenge. And I, I think it, it in its own way um, succeeded pretty well. And obviously, I guess probably one of your things you're most proud of and maybe the crown jewel on your resume is the work that you did. And what I understand, and I unfortunately haven't seen yet personally, is one of the most, most breathtaking and exciting and beautiful of all the Disney parks worldwide, and that's Tokyo Disney Sea. Well, thank you very much. And I, I really am the luckiest theme designer probably on the whole planet who have been <laughs> at the right place. And I'm serious. I mean, it's a lot of it, a lot of it is simply being at the right place at the right time. Um, with the availability of a very decent, respectable budget to, to build it properly, um, and with, I think, the cream of the, of the imaginary talent pool all coming together in, in one place. And I, I just, it, some of it's an accident of history, and some of it is, um, I think, really, really, um, well, I think a lot of people put their best efforts in their careers into that park, and I think it shows, frankly. Again, from the pictures I've seen and the videos I've seen, it's absolutely breathtaking, and I look forward to being able to go and experience it for myself because everyone that I've talked to that's come back from it is, is speechless and just says it, it's far and away uh, the most amazing of the theme parks. Even people who really are you know, Walt Disney World fans or Disneyland fans can't say enough good things about uh, Tokyo Disney Sea. Well, it's it's an, I think it's got its place in the in the in the collection of kingdoms and and and, and theme parks uh, in Disney's portfolio. Um, it's it was a challenge in a lot of ways because it couldn't borrow from very it couldn't borrow from anything from Florida. It couldn't borrow from uh, California. It couldn't borrow from Europe. It really had to to be a, a new portfolio of of attractions, and that was the opportunity, a huge opportunity, and also I think the challenge. Well, I hope maybe that you'd be willing to come on the show again and talk to us specifically about Tokyo Disney Sea, some of the other uh, attractions and, and unique things that uh, that you were able to put in that park and your work overseas in Tokyo. I would love that very much. Thank you. Uh, let me just ask you quickly before we go. You're no longer with Imagineering. You uh, you were there for about 25 years. Are you still consulting now, or what are you doing now? Um, we're consulting my uh, wife, Kathy, who is the uh, director of the creative division at Imagineering for a while, um, doing staffing. And now she is working with me and my brother uh, uh, for Kirk Design Incorporated. And what we're doing is uh, some theme park work, some international type theme park work. We're also doing some museum work. Um, we've done a museum on science fiction that's been built. Uh, we're doing, um, actually applying our theme park experience and design sensibilities to other industries, uh, to banking, believe it or not, to healthcare, to um, other places that want to get into more of a, a service-oriented and a consumer-oriented, friendly Disney approach to providing what they do. And um, that is fascinating because we're taking a whole um, consumer approach to what would make you happy going to this, this place and uh, uh, making use of these services from, from again, a Disney perspective. It's really, really fascinating. Well, again, you know, your your creativity and, and your brilliance and some of the things that you've created uh, in the Disney parks is something that I can say 
really is something that is appreciated still to this day by generations of fans, whether it be Figment, whether it be some of the attractions that maybe are gone but still kind of resonate in our minds. It's a, it's a testament to the quality and creativity of your work. And, uh, and you know, I personally really appreciate uh, everything that you've done uh, in and around the parks. Well, thank you very, very much. It was a real pleasure talking to you, and I've, I've had the pleasure also of working with some of the most wonderful people in the whole business in the history of the planet. Former Disney Imagineer Steve Kirk, thank you very much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you very much, Lou. Appreciate it. It's time for another visit on the Walt Disney World Wayback Machine slash character connection because we're going to take a look at some of Disney's characters and their connections to Walt Disney World theme parks. And in the past, we've looked at characters from the popular to the obscure. We talk about where you could find them, their relevance, and maybe even teach you a little bit about the characters themselves as well as the meaning behind their placement in the parks. So, of course, this week I'm joined by everyone's favorite character, a man with his own fan club thread in the forums, Mr. Jeff Pepper of 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. Wow. I'm somebody now. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Well, last week, what were you? You were were cute and cuddly or lovable or something like that. So now you you have your own fan club in the forums. And And I thank them. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, you know, speaking of last week, we looked at two of Walt Disney World's most beloved characters, and that was Dreamfinder and his little friend Figment. And this week, we're going to look at a kind of a, a somewhat similar character slash sidekick connection, because like the Dreamfinder and Figment, for the most part, they can no longer really be found in the parks, yet they have a similar sense of, you know, this nostalgic relevance to so many of us that have childhood memories of them. And I'm talking about the little orange bird, who was the figment to Anita Bryant's Dreamfinder. Now, Jeff, in that one sentence, I mentioned names that most of the younger listeners may not recognize at all, especially maybe Anita Bryant. But for some of us old-timers, I guess uh, we, we remember her as well as the orange bird pretty well. Yeah, the orange bird really is a true representation of 1970s Walt Disney World. Uh, that nostalgia that we have for that time period um, when we look back and think about it the orange bird was a very very big part of the magic kingdom and it really had a representation that extended well beyond walt disney world because it was part of a national advertising campaign so it was a sort of a brand character that really extended well beyond but was basically found their home at disney world yeah and we'll talk about how the orange bird made its way into traditional media like print and billboard and especially on TV along with Anita Bryant. But let's kind of go back and talk about where the orange bird came from and where he was found in the parks. Um, Because if you remember, the the Sunshine Pavilion in Adventureland is located between really the, the Tiki Room and that walkway to Frontierland. And at one time it was sponsored by the Florida Citrus Growers. And it served, obviously, citrus drinks and the legendary Citrus Swirl. I don't remember... Uh, which I guess is kind of the predecessor to the modern Dole Whip, <laughs> but yeah, um, <laughs> it, it, you're 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 right because you know it's it's funny you know Mike Scopa has turned the Dole Whip into this you know legendary icon 
you know, of the Disney online community, if not mainstream America. And, uh, <laughs> and my, you know, and when, when, when I first, you know, started listening, you know, and everybody would kid around about Dole Whips, my immediate thought was the orange swirls that were at the Sunshine Tree mm-hmm. Pavilion, because that's what we, that was one of my family's biggest treats, like as a part of, you know, our visits to the Magic Kingdom, that was one of the things we always got. So it was similar to the Dole Whip fascination. And, and I didn't even know about Dole Whips until just the last couple of years, um, but I always remembered the orange swirls. I don't even know who this Mike Scopa guy is that you're talking about, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's he talk. <laughs> he does. He gets it. But let's um, let's talk about the start of the Sunshine Pavilion and um, and actually how the Florida Citrus Growers kind of came into Walt Disney World and introduced the character. Yeah, well, they predated the opening of the park because they. It was, you know, when Walt Disney World was being developed and uh, being worked on. Yeah, and Disney uh, was looking for partners in um, their attractions, and they worked with the Florida Citrus Commission, and it was there where they developed um, the sponsorship, ultimately for the Florida Citrus or the Florida uh, the uh, Pavilion, and which was going to include uh, the Tiki Room that was being brought over from Disneyland. Yeah, the, the, the kind of the, the citrus growers was kind of like the, the front name of, of this commission. And they were willing to spend this $3 million that was going to be needed to create this tropical bird attraction for Disney. And it, as part of this deal, Disney was going to create what was going to become the official mascot of the Florida citrus growers, as well as be seen in the park. And that, of course, was the orange bird. Uh, because the, the citrus growers really had a, a big presence in a very small space. They sponsored the Tropical Serenade Show, which was inside the Enchanted Tiki Room. They also sponsored the Sunshine Tree Terrace Snack Stand, um, which was obviously, and the whole building really encompassed um, the Sunshine Pavilion. The basic area that we're talking about, it's hard to see directly on now since the magic carpets of Aladdin came in, but the Sunshine Terrace and the Sunshine Pavilion is kind of the snack bar that sits there right now to the right of the um, Enchanted Tiki Room. And you're right, it, Aladdin has kind of, you know, unless you go into the Tiki Room or unless you go into that walkway to Frontierland, I think a lot of people just miss it. They just don't realize that there's still a working snack bar. And you still can get the citrus swirls there, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, we started talking about the Orange Bird and the character himself because he was going to be featured not only in the parks, but outside the park. He was going to be in TV ads. Um, but most importantly, he was he became a walk-around character for this new multi-million dollar pavilion and theme park. And Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, but was he really the first non-animated film character that was probably created for the parks? Uh, I should say for Disney World. I know Disneyland had some probably that were were brought in, but for Walt Disney World, I can't think of anybody else that was not an animated film character that was a walk-around character. Yeah, I mean, he was created for this whole situation and then... You know, he was ultimately animated, as we'll talk about in in media, like for commercials and such um, that were actually national commercials that didn't necessarily weren't associated with Disney World. And then he also did there later on. I think this is going towards the 80s. He was animated for a public service type film that was, I guess, distributed to schools about nutrition. You know, focusing on oranges and citrus fruit. But I think you're right. I think he was specifically created as, as part of this association with um, the the Citrus Commission. Right, and like we said last week, much like Figment was, and again, these were we these were characters that, you know, ended up being beloved, and obviously Orange Bird has kind of faded into relative obscurity, but, you know, if you think about it, this was really quite 
a bold move on Disney's part, considering that people were coming there, really, they were there to see Mickey, they were there to see Donald, and here they were being greeted by this character that not only were they unfamiliar with, but had this freakishly large orange head with a couple <laughs> of green leaves sticking out and, and two green leaves for arms. I mean, he was a little kind of off-putting if you see some of the, some of the pictures of him. Yeah, you, you got to kind of, it's better to see the actual cartoony character of the orange bird before you actually see the walk around character. I think that's very important. <laughs> Kids hide your eyes because <laughs> <laughs> But uh, the, the one thing that impressed me too is if you listen or you read the lyrics, I'm going to put these up in this week's show notes. For the song that Anita Bryan sang about the orange bird, they actually created this this backstory for him, which was amazing that that they they took the time to do that and and told it in this in the song. Yeah, um, the, the Orange Bird itself was created by, uh, I think the gentleman's name was Bob Moore, and he'd done a lot of work for Disney. He had um, I, uh, he had done the design for the Walt Disney postage stamp that was done in the late 60s. All right, Jeff, well, as long as we're mentioning relatively obscure names to some people in the audience, I think a lot of people are pr- probably saying, who is Anita Bryant? Uh, and I think we need to talk about her specifically for a minute because she was actually a former Miss America contestant who was, she was kind of this model of the all-American housewife and she was the official spokeswoman for the Florida Citrus Growers. And she was in a lot of these TV commercials and print ads where she talked about, you know, drinking the, the benefits of drinking orange juice and how everything came from the sunshine tree. Yeah, she, you know, as a child of the 70s, you couldn't miss her. Um, she was so prevalent on television, you know, like you said, in the commercials. She was the type of person that would, you know, always show up on the Merv Griffin show. Um, it was just, you know, it was she was very much a part of the pop culture. And then she took a very distinct left turn, <laughs> and this is where so much of the, the controversy or right turn as a case may be. Yeah, <laughs> surrounding. Yeah, I stand corrected. Thank you. And and that is you know in a in and this is something also that's very memorable to many of us that you know were children of the '70s is that she got embroiled in a very 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 distinct controversy, and that was dealing with Florida trying to pass anti-discrimination legislation and specifically focused on um, discrimination against um, gays and lesbians. Yeah, and this really, you know, I was going to kind of say this for the end, but this really is what started to lead to the demise of the, obviously, Anita Bryant's um, place in Disney, but the Orange Bird as well, because she was very, very vocal, and she really led this prominent boycott of all things um, orange juice by gay activists. And she and this kind of boycott was surround was really supported by a lot of A-list celebrities at the time, like Barbara Streisand and Bette Midler and Paul Williams and Jane Fonda. And because of her position and because of her stance, this led to the Citrus Commission ending their relationship with her. And again, she I mean she really was their spokesperson for a long, long time. And while the the Orange Bird kind of survived relatively unscathed. They continued the relationship with Disney for a while, but eventually that ended up going away as well. And we'll talk about, you know, how it ended a little bit later on. Yeah, I, she went from, you know, 60 to zero real <laughs> fast when this happened. And it's, you know, it's unusual because this was still a relatively, you know, conservative time in terms of gay rights and um, issues of, you know, anti-discrimination in that regard. But yeah, the what you said is true. The, the boycott was so dramatic against the Citrus Commission that, you know, they, they yanked her. Yeah, and uh, and like you said, and obviously, um, although Disney continued the relationship with them, and fortunately, Orange Bird remained. Um, you know, all kind of traces of her um, really let left the park, and really the thing that was she was really most um, 
remembered for, I know at least for me personally, was the song. Um, because much like a lot of these old songs, it was one of those that could only have written by the masters of theme park music because it was so infectious. And once you heard it, you couldn't get it out of your head. And of course, it was written by the Sherman Brothers. It, it, it's hard to find something that the Sherman Brothers didn't write. <laughs> you know, I'm convinced. I think things are going to continue to still surface. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It was just something, again, they were just totally suited for. And like I said, the, the song, which I'm not going to sing, told the, the backstory of it and how um, the, the bird lived in the sunshine tree. And the bird couldn't speak, but it had all these really sunny thoughts and it, they appeared over his head in this little orange cloud. That's kind of how he was able to communicate. And, didn't and, a, and, a, uh, and a, a very important part you just mentioned was the um, the orange tree, which was an actual physical, tangible prop there at the terrace. That's that's what I was going to ask you. I seem to remember there being a, a tree, a fake tree, obviously with fake oranges as well. Right. It, the way it was set up, and I, my memories of this are very vague. I've had to depend on kind of going back and... Um, reading a few people that have wrote, wrote some articles about it, but it's it was described kind of as this. It was a tr- it was a fake tree, much like the um, the Swiss Family Treehouse. It had synthetic plastic leaves or whatever, and there was an orange bird prop character within the tree. And there was, I, like I said, I don't specifically remember this, but the way it was described is there was some type of screen projection which displayed. I don't know animation or whatever, but you were talking about the orange thoughts, the you know the the bird's actual visualizations rather than you know speech. Right, because he wasn't able able to, and I haven't been able to find a picture of that bird. I mean, there's plenty of pictures, and again, I want to put some of these up in the show notes, especially for those of you who may not be familiar with what we're talking about. But I can't seem to find one of the small bird on the perch. And if anybody has that, I would love it if you could share it with us. Um, but I I remember going there, and I remember. The orange drinks didn't, isn't it? Where they also served the drinks, like in the plastic containers, shaped like apples and shaped like oranges, like there were little round orange balls that you can get the juice and stuff in. Yeah, that was my memory as well. Okay. And, cool. <laughs> and the other thing that's it's important is that that the Citrus Commission, like we've been talking about, was rather far-reaching beyond Disney World, and you could find a great deal of Orange Bird merchandise or a presence in other places, in other stores. I mean, you know, you had throughout florida all these kind of orange based gift shops and um you know roadside stands that you know would ship the crates of oranges back home for you and the orange bird was used throughout all these places as a marketing tool and as somebody that whose family drove to florida every year i i absolutely remember that um very very well always seeing the orange bird and instantly making that association with disney thinking that wow they have disney characters selling oranges you know but really it was the orange character who was uh, in Disney World, and right. The other thing I was trying to remember too. Didn't they? Um, didn't they give out the record? Like, wasn't the record a giveaway either at the, the the stand or if you bought something? Or am I really just imagining things and, and nothing is, was given away? I don't remember it being a giveaway. I've read about you know how it existed, but I, I just thought it was just a purchase. Unless, but then again, it could easily have been something you know. Maybe a reader can, a listener. <laughs> Jeff's office game. <laughs> Maybe a listener can correct us or help us out with this. I I don't recall, but it, it it sounded like it would obviously be a perfect premium. You know, send send five orange crate labels in, and you know we'll send you a record. I mean, that sounds like it would be a perfect kind of marketing gimmick or promotion. So that I'm sure there might have been something. Like that. Yeah, and and like we said, 
even though Anita Bryant kind of came and went, the orange bird stayed around for a while because the, the citrus uh, growers and Disney continued their relationship after that was over. And they even opened up an, another location in the park, and that was over in Fantasyland. That was the Enchanted Grove in 1983, which replaced the old Fantasyland Art Festival that used to be there. And that's kind of right by the um, by the teacups. And uh, it, it wasn't until about three years later that the Citrus Commission and Disney ended their relationship. And obviously that's when the bird kind of flew the coop as well. But you were talking about merchandise, and it's interesting you say that because the orange bird made this kind of mysterious comeback in 2004, but it wasn't in the United States. It was in Tokyo, of all places. Yeah, the the orange bird is huge in Japan right now, as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) Not Um, not that the Japanese were late getting on board with the whole Nita Bryant thing, but there's reasons why that, that the orange bird is huge there. He's small, he's cute, and he's kind of like Hello Kitty. Well, I was going to say, he's got that big, and again, when you see the pictures in the show notes, you'll see he's got the, the big head and the small body like a lot of the, the Japanese animated characters have. And also, um, they also have something called Orange Day, which is April 14th, and that's a holiday where people actually exchange citrus fruit with, you know, almost like a Valentine's Day gift, which is obviously much cheaper than diamonds. So, honey, we're moving to Japan! Just think. <laughs> But yeah, so the orange bird, um, at least in Tokyo, survives and is alive. And you can find a lot, a lot of orange bird merchandise still online. And I, and I think there's there's this grassroots movement to kind of bring that back over to the United States here as well. Well, like we said, you know, part of the reason why we did this is because there is this, there's still, maybe it is just among us Disney geeks, but there is some sort of nostalgic popularity. And I'm going to put some links up in the show notes to a few websites that cover the orange bird quite well. Jeff, you actually had a post on your blog where somebody that's been doing some kind of retro desktops did a great orange bird desktop that I actually had on my desk for a couple of weeks. Um, there were there were pins. There were pins when the orange bird was first in Disney, and there's I, I guess there's still a market for these out there as well. Yeah, well, send a shout out there to Dan Cunningham. He's the gentleman you referred to who's been doing these retro desktops and the Orange Bird was the second one he did and it was great. It, it really, if you take a look at it, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's it's a real, it has that 70s nostalgia feeling to it but it got a great deal of positive reaction when we posted it and uh, he did a great job and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and like I said, there, there's a couple of the sites that talked about the Orange Bird and, and a couple of articles you can check out as well. I know Foxfur has a good post over at PassportToDreams.blogspot that I'll link to as well. So, And if you have any pictures of the Orange Bird that you want to share, you want to send in, or any kind of memories of the Orange Bird, feel free to, to send them to Lou at WDWRadio.com, or you can call the voicemail with a voicemail message. Uh, feel free to call in and sing the Orange Bird song. Jeff, that goes for you as well. And... Uh, I won't sing it, but I will play it for you. I do actually happen to have a copy of it, and I'll play it for you. And uh, Jeff, as always, this is always a lot of fun, kind of taking the trips on these Wayback Machine and, and talking about nostalgic things from the 70s and really dating ourselves <laughs> instantly. And to all my fans out there on my fan club, just head on over to the, the forums and post away and show, show Lou that you care. And, you know, those I Heart Jeff shirts are just flying off the Cafe Press store. So make sure you pick those up. Those are available at the... (laughs) But no, seriously, go and check out Jeff's blog. It's at 2719hyperion.blogspot.com if you're not tired of hearing me say that as yet. Jeff, thank you again. And as always, I will... uh, I'll see you next week. Alrighty, thanks, buddy. Up here in orange smoke That's what makes the orange bird unique Little orange bird, little orange bird, in the sunshine tree, in the sunshine tree.
Okay, we're back this week with another Walt Disney World Please Don't Sweep Me Half Marathon Challenge. And of course, I'm here with Eric Hollister from geomouse.com. Eric, how you doing, buddy? What's going on, Lou? But this week, Eric, we have another super special guest and a man, and I use that term loosely, that's a fan of Barney, but not the Iguanodon, our good friend, fellow podcaster, an all-around nice guy, Matt Hotchberg from MGM, my name, my domain name is now instantlyobsolete.org. Matt, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Lou. It's amazing how that can happen just one day. <laughs> Poof, you're you're insignificant again. And I believe that Matt just uh, made the Guinness Book of World Records for loudest shriek on dinosaurs. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just getting myself warmed up. You know, it's gonna be a lot of uh, screaming going on on that ride. That's right. I, to, I, I had Deanna practicing this past weekend, getting ready for, uh, for, for Dino Fest this, this December. So. <laughs> it should be fun. But Matt, you're here. Um, it, wasn't my, it wasn't my doing. It was all Eric's doing <laughs> to have you on <laughs> to do the next of our, uh, of our half marathon challenges. So tell us what you guys have uh, come up with. Well, Eric and I were, uh, were talking about uh, what I could do for, uh, to, to certainly enhance everything that you're doing over here, Lou, and uh, we thought of some really good uh, mean jokes, but then we decided, well, that probably wouldn't, although funny, it wouldn't help you raise any money. So we decided that instead we would offer a different challenge. Uh, some of your previous challenges have included, um, you know, guessing where a quote is from or guessing some trivia. And for this one, uh, for the first one, I think what we're going to do is we're going to do a uh, mystery picture from somewhere in the Disney MGM studio. So this is a photo of a rather obscure element somewhere in the studios, and it's you as the listener's uh, job to try to guess where it comes from exactly in the studios. And Jeff um, Pepper and I are, of course, excluded from this. As soon as you said obscure photos, our ears perked up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jeff is a, Jeff knows every single garbage can by, by by the back of his hand. So I knew instantly take those away. But uh, I'm I'm fairly certain Jeff will uh, will pull some comic book guy type reference out and be like you know worst picture ever because <laughs> he knows everything about it. So yeah, you guys are unfortunately disqualified. Sorry. All right. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna put the uh, the photo up both at uh, the WDWRadio.com show notes page as well as geomouse.com. And they'll have, Eric, what, two weeks? What, what's the due date to get the, the, their entries in? This will start beginning uh, this Sunday, so September 2nd, and we will cut it off at midnight on September 12th. So just submit all your entries to marathon at WDWRadio.com. And also be sure to include the name of your mile marker for mile marker number five in case you are chosen the winner. 
And, uh, Should we tell them what the prizes are this week? The winner will receive both Walt Disney World's Trivia Books Volumes 1 and 2, signed by Lou the Mighty Marathon Man Mangello, the DisneyWorldTrivia.com t-shirt, both the Disney World Trivia lanyard and trading pen. This week we're also going to throw in Mickey and Minnie Year of a Million Dreams plush figures. Of course, the winner will also receive a certificate of dedication for mile marker number five. We're going to start posting all of these winning entries now on geomouse.com going forward. And finally, they will be entered into the grand prize, which hopefully in the next couple of weeks we will announce what figure they will. As soon so. as we figure out what it is, we can announce what it is. Exactly. <laughs> as soon as something goes on sale, we'll get it. <laughs> exactly. No, you, know, <laughs> you mentioned the mile marker uh, names. We could almost have a contest for those because some of those are just so creative that, that I, I almost wish that was a contest in and of itself. Absolutely, yeah. and I think what we're what we're going to do is once this whole thing is over, is uh, get a list of some of the ones that we really got a kick out of. Post them on geomouse.com. You can give a link to you um, over to your site as well, and just vote on some of the favorites and see uh, which one was the most creative as voted on by the listeners. So, if and someone, whoever wins this week, can someone please name it the booster seat mile for me? Just, <laughs> <laughs> just something like that, or you know, I, I, something equally as funny. I mean, surprise us, but um, you know, none of these like nice names. I mean, come on, use your opportunity. This is like that time they they offered to name the uh, the Fleet Center for a day in Boston, Massachusetts, the Derek Jeter uh, Stadium. So we need something along those lines. Something, something. Uh, <laughs> We have gotten a few shots at Lynn here in the last couple of weeks, as far uh, as mile markers go. There have been a few shots at Lynn. So, oh, that's so 2006. I mean, we need we need. <laughs> the, <laughs> Lou is the man to insult in 2007. Remember, clearly. it's Hotchberg H O C H B E R G. Exactly. And finally, last but not least, of course, this is all for the DisneyWorld.com Dream Team Project. GeoMouse.com will donate $100. For challenge number five to the Dream Team Project, it uh, looks like we're closing in on that uh, original goal that you set, loose. so hopefully we can smash through it here in the next few weeks. Yeah, we're just about to hit the uh, the $12,000 mark in uh, a really short amount of time. I, I'm really amazed at how fast we hit it, so we're going to have to up that um, up that goal to uh, to another because that 12000 is going to probably be able to send two kids to Walt Disney World through Make-A-Wish Foundation, so... Um, thank you, Eric, obviously, and, and thank everybody for all the support with this. It, it's really amazing what it's turned out to. No problem. It's been fun. Thanks, guys. All right. I guess we have to shamelessly plug Matt. Hunt. All right. Go ahead, Matt. You could do it yourself. <laughs> well, you can visit my website, which is at and that's, w- and w- <laughs> <laughs> that's all we have time for this week. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know what, that, Matt? The show is running a little long. This, this segment's like six minutes, so... <laughs> Yeah, that's right. All the senior citizens have already passed out. The drugs have worked. Uh, you know, we must be an hour number. What is this now? Six now? Seven? Yeah, pretty Perfect. Much. Lou Mangiello's WW Radio Show. Perfect for your transatlantic flight. We're, we're on day two, actually. <laughs> day two. <laughs> okay, now seriously, go ahead and plug. Uh, you can visit uh, www.mgmstudios.org, as well as, of course, the <laughs> WDW Today podcast at www.wdwtoday.com. I don't think Scopo uh, plugged that when he was on here. Jerk. Uh, so <laughs> I'll take the opportunity to do that. <laughs> a lot of love between you guys and on that show, isn't there? <laughs> I love him, man. He's like a brother to me. Well, more like a great, 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 great grandfather. But you know what I mean. 
Uh, he actually had some words of encouragement for Lou uh, for his training. So, what do you have anything? Do you have anything you want to tell Lou right now? <laughs> you mean get out of bed and start running? That those words. Yeah. Get up! Get up! Mush! <laughs> yeah, I wish I, I should quote someone. One of the uh, the drill sergeant from um, Full Metal Jacket. I think he had some really inspirational words, but I don't think it'll meet the the requirements of uh, this Disney podcast. So uh, I'll I'll just. Leave you with these uh, inspiring words, Lou. Don't screw it up. <laughs> Thank you very much. Don't get swept. That, that's just what keeps echoing in the back of my mind. <laughs> Good luck, Lou. Seriously. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Matt Hotchberg, MGMStudios.org, and WDW Today, and Eric Halser from Geomass.com. Guys, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks, Lou. Thank you all for emailing the show with your questions and comments. I'm trying to get to all the time-sensitive ones as quickly as possible. This way I can get to them before maybe go on vacation or if you need to book something. Other ones I'm going to try and get to as quickly as I can. But the first one I'm going to start off this week comes from the uh, Geek Acres podcast. And it says, Hey Lou, I was looking at some pictures from our June visit to Walt Disney World and got to wondering, at the studios, are those modified 50s-style cars, such as the ones used in the parade, or the Power Rangers vehicles actual classic rides at their core, or are they just lookalikes? Well, Doug, thanks for the question. Yeah, these are actually real cars. They actually range from the 20s to the 50s. The earliest one is a 1929 Cadillac. The latest one, I think, is a 1951 Mercury. In there, there's also 39 and 40 Fords. There is a, uh, a 1949 Studebaker in there as well. There's about a dozen or so cars, but yeah, they are actually based on uh, on original vehicles, and and, that, and that's what's underneath the hoods there. And speaking of hoods, real quick, just a little kind of fun thing you can go look for. Take a look at some of the hood ornaments because they're pretty neat. So, for example, if you look at uh, the hood ornament on the Snow White vehicle, it's an apple that's got a bite out of it. Mary Poppins has a little penguin on the hood of hers. Uh, Lilo and Stitch have a little tiki on the front of theirs. So make sure next time the parade goes by and try and pick up on some of those little details. Our next email comes from Dan Garrig, who says, Lou, I want to get your thoughts on about the cheapest way to stay at a luxury resort, the Yacht and Beach Club. There will be a total of five adults, my wife and I, my parents and sister, and one child, age four. When we visited last time, we went to the Yachtsman Steakhouse, which was great, and my parents really enjoyed walking around the resort and the proximity to Epcot. I'd love to be able to take them all for a week with dining, but it sure does get confusing from the website. Even speaking with the travel agent last night took us two and a half hours. We just took my mom last time, and what a mess. He had to fix our reservation three times to get the best deal, etc. Well, it was nice enough, and I think it was a little confusing to him as well. Anyway, maybe you can give us some insight on how to work the deal to get the, me- the most out of it. My dad has always helped us out a lot, and I really want to show my appreciation by taking the whole gang with everything paid for up front. Thanks again for all the tips. P.S. By the way, your trivia helped us out the last night of our trip. When leaving, the bus driver asked us trivia question with whoever gave the correct response getting dropped off first. Needless to say, we got dropped off first, and I actually went on to help another resort team get dropped off second. I plugged your book and your podcast, Dan. Thank you for the plug. Thank you for the help. I'm happy it helped out. Now, obviously, the best way to stay at a deluxe resort like the Yacht and Beach Club, which is among my personal favorites, is to not only 
really, first and foremost, plan when you're going to go. And if you can go between August and October of this year, during when free dining is taking place, that's obviously your first choice. Um, if, you, if you do the Magic Away package, you can get free dining for everybody. Um, you're going to end up saving a ton, ton of money doing it that way. If you can't, then you got to start looking at things like going during value season, when the room uh, rates are the cheapest, when the rack rates are the cheapest. Um, does anybody have an annual pass? You'll be able to save on the room rates there. Um, and you should also definitely look into purchasing the dining plan because, again, even if you have to pay for the add-on option, you will invariably save everybody a lot of money. And, yes, you will be able to eat at places like the Yachtsman Steakhouse without having to worry about who's ordering what. Everything will be taken care of in advance, and I'm sure you guys will have a good time. Uh, if you have any more questions like that, maybe I can't specifically answer. I, I highly recommend calling a, a Disney travel agent, not Disney necessarily specifically. Um, you know I recommend the Magic for Less Travel. They'll be able to help you out with all these kind of things, make some of those arrangements, and definitely get you the best deal. Again, if you call them, if you call any travel agent, they should be able to help you out with all those kinds of plans that you make. And uh, good luck. I think it's a really neat thing that you're doing for your dad. Actually, our next question from Turk Linsmeyer talks about free dining he says hey lou this is turk from minnesota and i had a comment question for you my family and i just returned from our walt disney world vacation have you noticed or heard of people on the dining restaurant dining plan receiving poor service at the sit-down restaurants we had overall great service but at tony's our waitress was extremely rude and at boma our waitress wasn't real friendly we noticed other guests were treated differently by the same waitress like i said overall we had great service but at these two we didn't thanks for your time and keep up the great show Turk, you are talking about something that was, you know, somewhat of a complaint by a number of people. And maybe this is why Disney changed the dining plan this year, because originally gratuities were included in the dining plan. And some people commented, they said, well, maybe the, the, the staff wasn't working as hard because they knew they weren't going to get, most likely, any sort of additional tip. It was going to be that flat tip that was included. They have now since discontinued that. The gratuities are not included. So maybe... If that was the case, and I'm not saying it is because I think 99.9% .9 of the cast members give the best possible service they can to everybody regardless, um, that very well may fix that if in, if, in fact, that was a problem in the past. Now, that actually helps to answer Chris from Huntsville, Huntsville, Alabama's email who said, I emailed Matt this question, but I thought I'd ask you so I don't have to wait until after my trip. I'm sorry, Matt. She said it, not me. But anyway... I've heard that free dining will no longer be including gratuities due to re recent contract negotiation. Is this true? My wife and I are going to Disney and would like to know if we need to budget more money. Again, that's from Chris. Chris, uh, you are right, but it not, it's, it's not going to take effect this year. It is going to take place starting in 2008, where gratuities will no longer be included. Um, so at that point, you will have to bring a little bit of extra money in order for you to leave a tip for your server. Now, one thing you should note that is I still believe that for parties of six or more, there will be an 18% gratuity automatically added to your check. But again, Chris, for your trip coming up um, in September this year, uh, gratuities will still be included. Next email says, Hey Lou, my name is Tim Brown. I live in North Dakota. I really enjoy the podcast every week. They're so informative. I mostly enjoy the interviews you do with people that knew and worked with Walt Disney. Now, I have two questions. First, I enjoy collecting the Disney trading pins. I have some older pins from back in 1998. Is there a website where I can find the older pins and the value of these pins? Tim, I'm going to take your questions one at a time. Yes, there's a number of great pin websites out there, two that I know of, and I would uh, probably want to direct you to is DizPins, D-I-Z, P-I-N-S and pinpicks.com. 
They have these all-encompassing catalogs of basically every pin probably that Disney has created. They can give you some idea of the relative um, maybe rarity or value of them. Again, you can also check places like eBay to kind of see what the market is bearing if you're interested in selling those pins. Now, the second question, and I'm going to put those links up in the show notes for you too. Second question says, I've heard you speak of a bookstore at one of the parks. You said it was tucked away in an out-of-the-way location. What's the name of this store and where can I find it? Thanks for all the hard work. I always look forward to each one. Keep up the good work. It's appreciated. P.S. North Dakota is listening. Well, Tim, thank you. And to answer your second question, what I think you I was referring to is the store over at the Disney MGM Studios. It's called the Writer Stop, and it's right near the streets of America. And it is definitely tucked away kind of on the corner there. They serve... Um, Drinks, they, they have like uh, coffees and cappuccinos. They also have some ice drinks. They have cookies and pastries, whatnot. They also sell uh, a pretty good variety of books. I think they sell some scrapbooking supplies and some small souvenir there. There is a place in the back that you can grab a book, grab a cup of coffee, go in the back and kind of browse through it. Very quiet, very casual, out of the way. And of course, air conditioned in the summer. Our next email comes all the way from the Netherlands. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big tech geek, but I'm still fascinated by the fact that somebody in the Netherlands can write an email and in a matter of seconds I get it. Anyway, this comes from Daisy who says, Lou, my name is Daisy and I'm from the Netherlands. As I just said, I just found your podcast while cruising the internet looking for things on Walt Disney World. I was there a year, year ago and coming back again with my mom and dad. While listening to your show, I found that you need to book a dining experience 180 days prior to your stay. I've been told that I can't book them from here, so I was wondering what my chances of booking on the night that I'm in the hotel and will I be lucky. The reason I'm asking is because my mom and dad are having a birthday party over there and I want to make it very special for them. I'll arrive on the 20th and their birthdays are on the 24th and 25th. I was thinking along the way of a cake and a character dining experience. Can this be done or am I going to be disappointed? I also wanted to ask if I could reserve some sort of the tickets the night I arrive for the pirate and princess party at the Magic Kingdom. Thanks for reading this email. I hope you know what I mean because my typing is horrible. Best of love and thanks. Daisy, your, your typing was wonderful. And um, I won't try and pronounce your name because that will be horrible. I think it's Eeltink and you're from the Netherlands. Thank you again for writing. Um, as for the dining reservations, yes, you do have 180 days to start making your reservations. I know you said you couldn't book them from there. I'm not exactly sure why they wouldn't because if you do have your room already, they should be able to take your reservations. But anyway, if you can't, you may be able to get something when you get there, I would definitely suggest as soon as you check in, start trying to make some reservations um, as soon as you get up to your room. But you should know that many of the premier restaurants um, are going to be booked during the peak hours. So, you know, try not to be too disappointed if you can't get your first choices. I would definitely plan ahead, have a list of the places that you want to eat and start uh, calling to make the reservations when you get there. Now, you can get a special cake for your mom and dad. What I would do is definitely once you make your reservations, tell them that it is going to be a special occasion. It's something for your parents. You do want to have a cake. I think they can do something for about $10 or $12 extra. They'll bring out a special cake just for them. As for the Pirate and Princess Party, you 99% of the time should be able to go right up to the gate that night. Um, be aware, it may sell out ahead of time, but I, I really have not heard of that happening with Pirates of Princess Parties as yet. Obviously, the earlier you go to try and get in, the better you can start getting to the Magic Kingdom around 4 o'clock. You can pick up your ticket there. If you know, if you're going to arrive, for example, on the 20th, you know you're not going to go for a couple days, definitely buy your tickets in advance. We'll save you a couple dollars on each ticket, and you'll also be guaranteed admission. Hope you guys have a great time. Hope it all works out uh, for you, and you get to at least eat in some of the places that you're hoping to go for mom and dad. This email is not a question, but a suggestion or an idea from a longtime listener and reader that I wanted to share with you, and it's appropriate based on what the last two shows have been covering. And it says, hey, Lou. 
It's Kevin Passerino 6 on the forums from Rhode Island. I was just thinking about the many wasted spaces in Walt Disney World. The Skyway at the Magic Kingdom, the Disney Animation Building at MGM, just to name a few. One spot that has seriously dwindled was brought up a few shows ago, and that would be the former residence of the Image Works at the Imagination Institute in Epcot. I've come up with an idea that, while it may require some serious work to accomplish, may just be a great use for the space. Now, let's assume that what I was talking about before about Image Works not coming back um, it won't come true because I think this is a really, really cool idea. I think I might actually like to hear this one better. Anyway, all right, so here's his idea. Have you or any other listener ever heard of an idea to turn the image works into a sit-down restaurant? Think about how cool it would be to dine in an imagination-filled environment with fun-filled effects and a splash of figment here and there. They could use the pin tables as tables to sit at or maybe enter the restaurant through the rainbow tunnel. This could be a way to reintroduce the Dreamfinder to a new generation of visitors. He could be the owner of the restaurant. There's so many props and set pieces from the old Journey to Imagination attraction that must still be floating around, all of which could be used to decorate the place. The many fans of the original attraction, which I definitely am, would probably love to dine surrounded by the memories of one of Epcot's lost treasures. Disney already has a character to use with Figment, so they have their character attachment. This would They would gain a new sit-down restaurant in Future World, which would easily give others another option than the land. Finally, the imagination purists could literally, and figuratively, have their cake and eat it too. Let me know what you think. I don't know if Disney would be able to fit the requirements for a restaurant, for example, kitchens, etc., but I think it would be amazing. Thank you for continually providing us with the best Disney podcast around. Make sure everyone knows to vote for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, you're an amazing fan of Disney knowledge, Kevin Williams. Kevin, I think that is a spectacular idea uh, for so many reasons. Again, Number one, Epcot's Future World needs another sit-down restaurant. You've got the character attachment. You've got something else to use in the Imagination Pavilion. Think about how nice it would be to dine upstairs, you know, under the uh, the, the glass pyramid or, or dine at night and being able to see Spaceship Earth. Um, again, with Dreamfinder and Figment, they could do so many incredible creative things with that space. The views would be spectacular. Um, I'm sold. I, I think it's an absolutely amazing idea. I'd love to know what listeners think uh, about it. They can either post in the forums or, or send me an email. Um, sadly, I think it probably isn't going to happen, maybe for logistics, maybe for money. Um, again, because it's on the second floor, getting uh, food up and down there and, and building maybe a whole other kitchen up there might not be a possibility. But um, it's a blue sky idea that, that I really, really like, and I thank you for sending that in. Matt from Philadelphia wrote and said, Hey, I was wondering what time Disney starts letting people into the Magic Kingdom for the very merry Christmas party. I have a 645 reservation at the Crystal Palace, and I don't want to use a day on my regular Disney ticket for just 20 minutes to make my reservation time. I was wondering, is it possible to use the Christmas party ticket to enter the Magic Kingdom, say, at 640? Thanks for your help. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Matt, as I said before, I think you could actually start getting in around 4 o'clock or so using your Very Merry Christmas Party ticket, so you'll have plenty of time to actually walk around, do some shopping, browse, maybe hit an attraction or two before you have to head on over to the Crystal Palace. Another quick comment comes from Nick from Connecticut, who's the host of the Between the Lines, the Comics podcast. He says, Dear Lou and fellow listeners, thank you very much for your feedback regarding my idea about using the handheld devices in the parks. You have a very valid point, and I have to agree with your feedback 100%. I imagine the functionality to be akin to looking at a map or looking up something in an unofficial guide, ding, or trivia book, ding, ding. However, the Pal Mickey plush is a much better themed way of getting some of the same content. Regarding a comment somebody made about banning electronic devices in the parks, I agree, I hate to see people constantly on the phone, even outside the parks, but having a cell phone on you can be essential, especially when you have large groups like my family, 
So keep those gadgets in your pocket unless you absolutely need them. And again, that comes from Nick. Thank you very much. We were talking about the use of the emerging technology where kids will actually be able to bring their Nintendo DSs and interact with games throughout the park like Pirates of the Caribbean. Not really a fan. I'm really more of a fan of, of the family experience and people talking and experiencing everything Disney have to, has to offer without having to stare down at their video screens the whole time they're walking around. Heather Jones from Memphis, Tennessee wrote in and said, Hey Lou, I've enjoyed your podcast for several months now, even the geeky parts with Jeff Pepper. I can't wait to get back to the world and see some of the things you talk about with your guests. I particularly enjoy the discussion on the dinosaur section of Animal Kingdom. Absolutely fascinating. I love those kind of details, but I may have missed them without the backstory. I have a question I'm hoping you can answer for me. My family is going to Walt Disney World this September. We're flying and we'll be at the mercy of Disney transportation. I'm considering taking a taxi a couple times to visit some resort restaurants, but my family is six strong, so we'll need a taxi van. Are taxi vans difficult to come by? Are they more expensive than a regular taxi? Also, I need to know if we'll be able to request a car seat for my three-year-old daughter. If you can help, I'd be most appreciative. Keep up the great work, Heather. Heather, thank you. And you bring up a great question about transportation, not only to and from the airport, but around the theme parks and depending on where you're going. Now, a couple things you should note. When you get to Orlando Airport and you are going to go, you can get a taxi or you can get a shuttle van from the airport right to your hotel. A taxi is going to cost you about... 50 to $60 one way, and that's for a regular taxi. Now, the shuttle vans are one way, usually around $20 per person. So you need to keep that in mind. Um, they, they are pretty regularly um, at, at the airport. What I would probably suggest doing is calling ahead to a, a car service company requesting a van for your family. I think you'll probably save money. You can make a stop if need be. Most of them will actually make, let you make a grocery stop um, if you have to. Now, as far as getting back and forth, um, oh, also, if you do need a car seat, most of them will be able to have a car seat available for you, so you don't have to worry about bringing your car seat down with you. Uh, as far as getting to the resort restaurants, you're probably better off not using a taxi, using the Disney transportation if possible. I don't know how young your kid or kids are. Uh, maybe that's part of the reason why you don't want to do it. You can get taxis to and from um, what what will normally happen is usually there are some taxis out in front of the resorts or Disney, somebody at the Bell Services can call for you. You may have to wait a little bit longer if you need a van. You may just be better off taking a couple of cabs. Um, obviously, they don't have car seats with them. So if that's what you're looking to do and you don't want to hold the child on your lap for those kind of trips, you, um, you may want to actually bring your own car seat. Now, if you're looking for one, uh, a car service specifically, the one that I use myself and one that I recommend is Quicksilver Tours and Transportation. I'll put a link up in the show note. They do have 10 passenger vans. Um, and again, this, this is one of these car services that will make those stops for you if you need it. You can probably have them come and take you in between resorts. But again, that might just be too prohibitively expensive for you. Again, I'll put the link up in the show notes, but it's quicksilver-tours.com. Actually, when you call or if you book online, if you use the discount code WDWTRIVIA, you will save $5 off your round-trip service to and from the airport. But um, I use them. Nice fleet of cars. And again, not all that expensive that, if that's the way you want to go. Last email is just going to be a quick one. That comes from Paul in Connecticut. It says, Lou, my wife and I were disappointed to see the Fountain View Cafe closed. Do you have any information on when or if it will reopen? It was a favorite of ours for breakfast at Epcot while waiting for our soaring fast passes to be valid. It was great dining al fresco while watching the fountain and people walk by. I agree, Paul. We enjoy listening to the podcast. Congrats on winning in the travel category. Look forward to seeing you in Mouse Fest in December. 
Paul. Actually, the Fountain View did reopen last week, but it did open um, a little bit different than it had before. Originally, it was a uh, an espresso and a bakery shop. Served wonderful, wonderful things. Great place to grab some breakfast. It is now reopened as the Edie's Ice Cream Parlor, obviously hosted by Edie's Ice Cream. So now you don't have really those desserts and all those different kind of treats. You don't have the cappuccino, but what you do have are a variety of different ice cream things like sundaes and floats and shakes and whatnot. Uh, don't know why the, the decision was made to change it that way. What I do know is currently the ice cream parlor is open from about 2 o'clock until the close of Epcot. That may change. It may actually be open a little bit earlier, probably around noon or so. Supposedly it has been very well received. They're also thinking about possibly expanding the menu, maybe to include some lunch or sandwich items in the future. So uh, that's going to do it for this week's email segment. By all means, please keep them coming. You can send in questions, comments, feedback, anything you like to Lou at WDWRadio.com or you can call the voicemail at 206 206- 202, the number 4, WDW. That's going to do it for this week. I know the show ran long, but there was a lot of great stuff to cover. I thank you once again for tuning in and hope you enjoyed the show. I want to give my special thanks to my very special guest, former Disney Imagineer Steve Kirk. Thanks to Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com, as always, as well as Eric Halster from geomouse.com. And Matt, Barney is the only dinosaur I'm not scared of, and even that's pushing at Hotchberg from mgmstudios.org. I also want to tell you to go check out the MouseTimes.com videocast for more information about the Celebration 25. Thanks to John Crigliano for calling in and also for taking some video from the book signing at the Virgin Megastore signing last weekend. The show notes page can be found at WDWRadio.com and there you're going to find more information, links, and photos to topics I covered on the show. You can also find links to our merchandise shop as well as previous episodes of the show. On upcoming shows, I have more in our Legends of Disney Imagineering's interviews, the next of our Seven Wonders of Walt Disney World, another classic Epcot Center Pavilion in our Epcot Retrospective series, more DSIs, vacation planning, more special guests, your email, and so much more. Now, I promised you last week an update on my Mouse Tour CDs, so here we go. I've been working feverishly on the first installment, which is going to be Main Street USA, and I hope to have it ready for the NFFC convention at the end of the month. I'll have more details in the coming weeks as well as when I'm going to start taking orders. Now, if you don't know, the Mouse Tours uh, series of CDs is really going to be a guided audio walking tour of the parks. I'm going to be pointing out some of the overlooked details, hidden treasures, history and trivia, as well as how to get the most out of your, your vacation. Now, you can listen while you're in the parks. You can listen at home or in the car to kind of get that feeling of being there and walking along with me down Main Street, USA. For those listeners that are visually impaired, it's going to be a great way to experience the park virtually or kind of take the tour with you to the parks as I describe in detail all that surrounds you. So for more information, you can visit our show notes page or you can go to mousetour.com. That'll take you to the page over at disneyworldtrivia.com. Like I said, I will keep you updated in the coming weeks as to when it will exactly be available and when I'll start taking orders. Don't forget to enter this week's Mile Marker Marathon Challenge 
You can send your entries into marathon at wdwradio.com and also be sure to include the name of your mile marker if you win. If you are going to be at MouseFest this year, make sure you visit our MouseFest page. I'll put up a link in the show notes. You can also go to mousefest.org. There you can find the full schedule, including Trivia Fest, PodFest, and the live DSI Disney Scene Investigation with me and Jeff Pepper. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hope you guys can make it. If you're going to book your trip for MouseFest or any Disney vacation, be sure to visit our friends over at themagicfullest.com for the best prices, the best service, daily discount checking, and lots of free goodies. Again, you can visit our show notes page at WDW Radio or visit themagicforless.com. Don't forget, I continue to want the show to be interactive, so email me anytime at lou at wdwradio.com if you have a question, comment, segment idea, anything at all. Of course, I love it when you call into the show. It's 206 202 for WDW. You can also please come by our fun and very friendly, very welcoming forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com for discussions about all things Disney. I want to say a special hello to Annette and the rest of the Stephen family from Bedfordshire, UK. And be sure to visit another friend of the show. That's Jessica from IfWeCanDreamIt.blogspot.com. If you like looking at crates and garbage cans and some of the other wonderful hidden treasures of Walt Disney World, you're going to really love her blog, Bookmark It, and be sure to visit daily. As always, if you like the show, please review us in iTunes, dig the show, and of course, please help spread the word. Thank you again for tuning in this week. I really appreciate you coming back. Have a fantastic week. See ya. You made it! I knew you would, and guess who made it back with you? I'd better find it before security does. Thanks for everything.